This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com slash COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. Radio.com station. From the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome in on this last Sunday in July to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, and I thank you for listening. This Tuesday, July 28th, is World Hepatitis Day. Hepatitis, the suffix itis means inflammation, like tonsillitis or sinusitis. Hepatitis suggests inflammation of the liver. And this can result from one of many causes, such as physical injury, drug reactions, infection from bacteria, or even viruses like mononucleosis. Today we're here to discuss the most common types of hepatitis caused by viruses you may be familiar with, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C. Here to share a wealth of information is Dr. Jonathan Fenkel, an associate professor from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. He's the director of the Hepatitis C Center and the associate medical director of the Liver Transplant Program. He'll discuss the three causes of hepatitis and recent outbreaks in Philadelphia. Welcome, John. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Marianne. Let's begin our first segment with hepatitis A. Of the causes of viral hepatitis we'll discuss today, this is probably the kindest, but it's very contagious. How do people become infected, John? The most common way patients can become infected with hepatitis A is through contaminated food or water. More commonly in a restaurant scenario where a a restaurant worker may have an infection with hepatitis A and doesn't wash their hands too well, can transmit the virus through the food into the person who ingests that food or water. Washing hands is so important uh, to prevent this. Unfortunately, we're all very good at washing hands now through the COVID pandemic, Um, but restaurant workers in particular need to wash their hands to prevent this infection from Uh, passing on to their consumers. Occasionally, you can also see this in daycare centers, 
or residential institutions. But fortunately, it's a vaccine-preventable infection, and most children um, have been vaccinated for hepatitis A in the United States. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, you see community outbreaks as well. Maybe I remember reading about uh, some shellfish, uh, food that is raw or minimally cooked, I guess. And I remember uh, an outbreak with frozen strawberries in Michigan and Maine. So, so how would somebody know that they have it? What symptoms might somebody look for? So the most common symptoms are flu-like symptoms, things like fatigue or just some energy or just feeling tired, basically. Um, things like nausea can occur, abdominal pain, particularly in the right side of the abdomen. And then as the infection progresses, some patients will develop jaundice, which is where their eyes or skin may turn yellow. Um, this may not be totally obvious to everybody if it's just mild, but things like darkening of your urine may represent um, an infection or a lightening of the color of your stools sometimes could represent uh, a, an infection with hepatitis. Rarely there can be some um, less common symptoms like joint pains or joint aches, uh, rashes are very uncommon, but occasionally will occur with this infection. Um, symptoms are, are not always present with this infection. For instance, children may not have any symptoms at all, um, but most adults who become infected with it, about 70% of adults who become infected will present with jaundice or that yellowing of their skin or eyes. Um, very rarely, maybe one in 10 patients or less will have uh, a second episode a few months after they've recovered from this infection. That's called relapsing or remitting hepatitis. Fortunately, that goes away without a need for any particular treatment. Interesting. And so sometimes a person might think they have the flu because if the jaundice or the yellow skin or eyes is subtle, um, they would know to see the red flag if their urine is dark or light stools. And you say, too, that recovery from the acute infection once you have hepatitis A, you're immune for the rest of your life. And the good thing about hepatitis A versus B or C is there's no chronic infection. Once you have it, it leaves your system. And most of the patients don't need to be in the hospital or medicated. But tell us about the rare complication you see once in a while. Sure. As you said, it's it's most likely here that you'll make a full recovery if you do get infected with hepatitis A. In fact, 98% of patients make a full recovery um, and don't have any chronic disease from this. But 1% or 2% of the time, so pretty rarely, patients can develop what's called a fulminant hepatitis or acute liver failure from this infection. And this is basically when the infection takes over the body and the liver, so much so that it causes the liver to stop doing the job it's supposed to do. In these situations, you definitely would need to be in a hospital, and ideally at a hospital that could offer liver transplantation, as liver transplant may be needed to uh, save your life in that situation. And that brings us forward to the year, uh, and correct me if I have any details wrong, uh, the year of 2019, Philadelphia saw 426 outbreak-related cases, including four deaths, and comparing it to 2018, when there were only 20 cases, tell us a little bit about that. It was a very interesting year. And as you mentioned, hepatitis A is usually pretty uncommon in Philadelphia. We see about 20 cases a year. And last year, we saw over 400 cases in the year. Um, the, the thought was that it was related in part to increasing drug use, homelessness, but there were also many cases that we just couldn't explain and may have been associated with restaurant or other food-related outbreaks. Um, we, we actually had to care for 
several of these patients at our center. At one point, we had more than 10 in a month, which is pretty unheard of, even at an oh. academic transplant center like ours. And sure. we did have to take care of a few patients that did require a liver transplant for this uh, severe outbreak. Thank goodness that's become so accessible for people. So the take-home message is the vaccine is safe and it's available for babies beginning at the age of 12 months and children and adults. And especially if you travel for work or if you're a person who likes to travel and you go to areas of the world that um, where sanitation is not wonderful, that, that's an issue too, Yes. Absolutely. And this is a vaccine that's been around for many years. It's not a new vaccine. It's very safe. It's given to children starting at age one. You get two doses. Adults also can get this vaccine. And so if you, again, work in an area where you may be at higher risk of getting infected with it or you travel a lot, like you said, um, I would definitely recommend the vaccine. It's just two doses. Um, It's a killed vaccine, so it won't give you the infection. Um, additionally, if you're thinking about traveling somewhere, whenever we're allowed to travel again, uh, feel free to go to the CDC's website where they have a great travel section. You plug in the name of the country you're going to, and it tells you which vaccines you might need to get before you go. Uh, hepatitis A is a pretty common one that's recommended. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, one of the good things that we're learning from being more careful with COVID is to wash our hands. The whole concept, if if this virus is in stool and a person uses the bathroom doesn't wash their hands then they can spread it to other people and it's so unnecessary that's why in the bathrooms especially restaurants it says staff must wash their hands before they go back to their stations but we all have to wash our hands and it makes a huge difference let's take a little break john and we'll come back after to hear about hepatitis b Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And welcome back. We're here with Dr. John Fenkel from Jefferson Hepatology. He's here to talk about hepatitis B. Now, this is another viral infection of the liver which is a global health problem. And unlike hepatitis A, that usually clears and does not leave permanent liver damage, both hepatitis B, and we'll be talking later about hepatitis C, can linger and cause chronic liver disease that can even advance to cirrhosis and cancer. Tell us about that, John. Sure, so hepatitis B is a very common infection worldwide. And it is one of the leading causes of liver cancer, which is the second most common cause of cancer death in the world. Um, It's also fortunately like hepatitis A, a vaccine preventable infection, Um, but many people have not been vaccinated for this infection and are susceptible to getting it. Um, The virus has been around for many years. It was first discovered in 1965 um, by Dr. Blumberg, uh, a Jefferson graduate who actually won a Nobel Prize for this work. We have to give him um, a shout-out, John, because we're both Jefferson grads. We have to give him an extra <laughs> applause. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, by uh, 1971, there was a blood test that was able to screen uh, blood transfusions. And once we were able to sort of figure out that hepatitis B was a, a blood-borne infection, uh, we were able to decrease transmission through things like blood transfusions, which were pretty common in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and since 1986, there's been a hepatitis B vaccine, which since around 1992 has been 
widely implemented in a lot of screening recommendations. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not a virus that you can get from a vaccine. It's a virus that can be prevented from the vaccine. So that's also really important. Um, And, you know, World Hepatitis Day on July 28th was in large part started to recognize that many patients with hepatitis B have yet to find out that they have it and as a way to help not only prevent liver cancer, but prevent liver failure or cirrhosis that may occur from the virus. Uh, it's an important public awareness day. And, and I guess the, the real nastiness of hepatitis B is it's sometimes called the silent infection because a lot of patients have absolutely no symptoms when they're first infected, which, as you say, can lead to a few problems. A, they can pass it to other people without realizing it. So testing is the way to know who has it. And B, um, if it lingers in your bloodstream undetected, um, it can lead to chronic disease. So whom should we screen? Whom should we test? I think you raise an important point there. First of all, just want to reiterate that, that it, it can be silent for the vast majority of people. And, and this is why hepatitis B became such a worldwide problem for many years, was that particularly women who had no idea they had it had babies and then were able to pass the infection on to their children through childbirth. And then they became infected and, again, didn't know they had it either. And so for generations, there was the transmission of hepatitis B, particularly in uh, Southeast Asia and China, where patients were born to mothers who had hepatitis B and didn't know that either of them had it. Um, So that's another reason why childhood vaccination is really important to prevent that transmission as well. Um, So in general, hepatitis B is pretty easy to get. Um, It it can be spread through blood. It can be spread through sex. It can be spread through um, some body fluids as well. Anything where there's a chance to pass blood from one person to another, injection drug use, um, even things like tattoos or body piercings done at unsterile techniques, accidental needle sticks for healthcare workers, even household things like toothbrushes or razors could transmit hepatitis B or C, for that matter, um, unknowingly. But and I mentioned it can also be spread through sex, and um, they can be prevented through uh, using things like condoms. It can be prevented with vaccines. Um, so that's also really important. Mm-hmm. And if a baby is uh, born to a mother who uh, does have hepatitis B um, and the baby does not contract it, know that breastfeeding does not increase the risk for the baby. Am I right with that? That's true. Yes. Mm-hmm. It does not increase the and risk. And I, I always tell my, uh, you know, when I do public lectures or, you know, uh, health and wellness, I always say to especially young people going off to college, take your dob kit. Um, don't leave your toothbrush or your razor on the little shelf in the, the college dorm bathroom that people might stumble in, they're tired, they pick up the wrong toothbrush or they use your razor in the shower. Oh, can I borrow your razor? If they cut themselves, you're sharing each other's blood. Not good. Um, and I think that's a really um, kind of a practical point to remind people. And I think the literature says, you know better than I, in the 80s, tattooing, acupuncture, even nail salons, um, People didn't know. And uh, am I right that some of the technicians from uh, liver centers go to maybe tattoo uh, conventions and they're seeing now they pour the ink? You know, so if somebody's getting a tattoo and the needle goes in and out of the ink, uh, the blood goes from the needle back into the ink. So now they pour the ink into a paper cup and throw away the, uh, the extra. So people are becoming more aware of uh, steps they can take to make tattoos and, uh, I guess, body art safer. So that's that's a good thing. That is a good thing. 
Yeah. So as you said, you can have an acute uh, course of hepatitis B and it goes away, which would be wonderful, but sometimes it can linger. So tell us about the difference between acute and chronic hepatitis B, John, please. Sure. So acute hepatitis B is when a person is first infected with the infection. It's considered new or acute. Uh, this is medically defined as having an infection for six months or less. Um, mm-hmm. Some people won't have any symptoms with this, but the majority of people will feel something like fatigue, abdominal pain, or get jaundice, just like hepatitis A. Um, the important thing here is that uh, this virus can take a lot longer to clear. And unlike hepatitis A, unfortunately, it doesn't clear your body completely all the time. And the, the virus leaves a little piece of genetic material in the liver of the people who have had the infection before as sort of a reminder that it was there. And while it may Mm -hmm. be something that you don't actually have anymore once you recover, there is a small chance that that virus could be awoken in the future in very stressful situations, such as um, chemotherapy for cancer or immunosuppressive therapy medications that change your immune response, say in the setting of an organ transplant. Um, Mm -hmm. Fortunately, that's that's not that common, and in an adults who get an infection with hepatitis B, eighty to ninety percent of them will get over the infection and not develop chronic hepatitis. But there mm-hmm. are ten to twenty percent of adults who get infected with this hepatitis B that can develop chronic infection. And what that means is basically the virus doesn't go away, and it lives inside the liver and the blood, and it increases in t- over time. The body responds to that infection by trying to kill it, but it doesn't do it effectively. And that inflammation caused by this this process of trying to fight the infection leads to liver injury. Um, so mm-hmm. just like if you were to cut your hand and it gets red or inflamed and then it heals with a scar, the same thing happens when your liver is affected uh, with hepatitis B or hepatitis C. Uh, you basically develop little micro cuts in the liver over time. The body tries to heal those. They lead to scarring. And we call that scarring fibrosis. The more fibrosis or scarring that occurs in the liver, the liver can develop cirrhosis, which is basically an accumulation of scarring over time. And that can lead to a whole host of other problems, including liver cancer or liver failure. Yeah. And and it seems as though statistics make it seem that the younger the patient, so newborns and babies are much more likely to develop chronic hep B than, say, children ages one to five so what would you say, about 90% of newborns or babies will develop chronic, maybe 50% of children up to age five, but the adults that you see, maybe five to 10% of them will be at risk for chronic hep B? That sounds right to me. I, I think that the adult immune system is more able to clear the acute infection than the newborn baby's immune system or the child's immune system. So you know, the older you are when you get infected, the more likely you are to not get chronic hepatitis the younger you are that you're infected, the more likely you are to get chronic hepatitis. However, your body may tolerate that infection for many years. Um, Mm. But we do know that the longer you have the infection, the more likely you are to develop complications of the infection over time. And it can take 20 or 30 years of being infected to see cirrhosis or liver cancer happen. Sure. And I, I like that your emphasis, if a little piece of the genetic material lingers in your body and you need Uh, chemotherapy or special medications to suppress your immune system later, like inflammatory bowel disease, sometimes Crohn's disease, we need to quiet the immune system. The message for our listeners, 
if you've ever had hepatitis B or C, you must tell every doctor you ever meet that that's in your history. And John, sometimes with hepatitis B, we see infection with other viruses like hep C or HIV, right? That's true. They can be co-transmitted along with the hepatitis B because they also can be transmitted through the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And um, so get the vaccine, starting with newborns. Day one, they get the first shot, then at six months, and then at 12 months. But you were all excited when we chatted earlier because there's a newer vaccine that you can complete more easily. Tell us about that, if you would. Sure. So the traditional vaccine, as you mentioned, is a three-dose vaccine, usually given on the first day, a month later, and six to 12 months later for the last one. The new vaccine allows for just a two-dose vaccine strategy where you get one today and you get one a month later, so you don't have to come back for that six-month shot. And I think patients are going to be more likely to remember to get the whole vaccine series and thus more likely to get full immunity from the infection. Mm-hmm. So there's no specific cure for hepatitis B, but what's what you're optimistic about, there are several ongoing studies, and with some of the therapies you do offer, it decreases risk for cirrhosis and cancer. So knowing there's a risk for cancer, if you have chronic hepatitis B, interval checkups are so important. Every six months, come back to your doctor, be followed. John, um, Tell us real quickly, there's a grant that was just given by the National Institutes of Health to the city. You and other partners are working on a great project. Can you summarize that in a minute? Sure. There's a lot of energy and collaboration in Philadelphia right now as a result of this grant that came out of the Office of Minority Health and the Department of Health and Human Services. And basically, it's trying to work toward the elimination of hepatitis B in our area. I'm happy to play a small part in this effort by working to improve provider education about hepatitis B. But there are many facets to this project, including enhanced screening and linkage to care for patients with hepatitis B. So it's a really exciting time. It's so preventable. It's just, and I, I love the website that you referenced. The Hepatitis B Foundation website is hepb.org. I'll repeat that before the show is over. The um, explanations about hepatitis A, B, C are beautifully well written, very simply, great information, great resource. Um, and. We'll be back after this break to talk about hepatitis C. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. We're back with Dr. John Fankel from the Division of gastroenterology and hepatology, that's liver disease, at Jefferson University Hospital. John, we've just heard a lot of important information about hepatitis B. Let's talk about hepatitis C, because you run the Hepatitis C Center at Jefferson. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. So hepatitis C is uh, an infection I love to talk about. The great news about hepatitis C is there's never been a better time to have hepatitis C, because we have so many good treatments available right now and you're very likely to get cured of this infection in a very short period of time. Um, we've come mm -hmm. so far in the last seven years with hepatitis C, um, really the last 10 years. Uh, we have 12 new treatments available since 2011. Um, they're all oral, there's no injections, and it's really a, a great time to treat and cure hepatitis C. It's an explosion of new meds, it sounds like. And, and for our listeners, transmission, similar to hepatitis B, infected blood or body fluids. And what's really helpful is that prior to 
1992, we didn't have a test to look for hepatitis C. And that was really the, um, the hepatitis virus that was transmitted most often with blood transfusions. We used to call it non-A, non-B because we didn't know what virus it was. So that was huge and makes blood transfusions much safer. And, and as you said, with hepatitis B, unprotected sex, IV drug use, um, and they also emphasize in the literature sharing straws used for cocaine. I guess if it scratches the lining of your nose, it makes it easier to, uh, for transmission. And as you said earlier, with tattooing and body piercing, all these things, be so, so careful. Absolutely. Anything where your blood could get infected from somebody else's blood, so whether it's an injection drug needle or drug paraphernalia, could be a dirty tattoo, ink or needle, body piercing, even um, long-term hemodialysis that patients might be on for kidney failure has a small risk of transmitting hepatitis C. Uh, but like you said, you know we have um, a very clean blood supply now as a result of excellent testing for hepatitis C. It wasn't so mm-hmm. much that we didn't have a test for hepatitis C before 1992. We didn't really even know that it was a thing. Um, and as you mentioned, right. it was called non, non-A, non-B hepatitis. They knew something was going on, but didn't know exactly what it was. It wasn't really until the late 80s that we even knew hepatitis C was a separate virus. Um, but we've really come so far in a short period of time to not only identify the virus, be able to test for the virus accurately, and also be able to treat the virus uh, mm-hmm. extremely effectively now. And it's so important for patients who are diagnosed with hepatitis B or hepatitis C. To be fair, let the people in your home know and your sexual partner or partners, because if they're tested, say, for hepatitis B and they don't have it yet and they haven't had the vaccine, get them vaccinated. So the symptoms, again, they're often without symptoms, yes? Correct. Most patients Mm -hmm. with hepatitis C have no symptoms. And the only way to really know you have it is to get tested. Um, If you do have symptoms, usually it's because you had it for a really long time and may already have cirrhosis from it. And in those cases, maybe you're tired, maybe you have a little lack of appetite, some nausea. And and, Mm -hmm. as the disease advances, you may start to have swelling in your stomach or your legs. You may bruise or bleed easily. You may also be jaundiced or have that yellow skin or eyes. And in extreme cases, you may have confusion um, and, and also liver cancer that could present in this fashion, such as with weight loss mm. or pain. Um, I, I, I did want to mention that because there's no symptoms, screening is really important for this infection. And the recommendations for screening have changed over the past few years significantly. And as of April of this year, there's a new recommendation from the CDC that everyone over age 18 get tested at least once. Um, mm-hmm. And this was this was a revision from a recommendation from a few years ago when baby boomers were all recommended to be tested for hepatitis C. And at that point, you know, patients or people born from 1945 to 1965 were the highest group to be infected with hepatitis C in the United States and also the most likely to have cirrhosis or liver cancer from that because they would have had it for many years. Um, but recently, we've seen a dramatic rise in new hepatitis C cases in young patients as a, a corollary or you know, and tied with the overdose epidemic in the United States. And so as we see younger patients injecting drugs, particularly heroin, fentanyl, um, or using cocaine, um, we are seeing a dramatic rise in acute and chronic hepatitis C among people age 18 to 35. So what we've tried to do as a medical community is really take the stigma out of this and so say, I don't really care how you got hepatitis C. I just want to find out if you have it so I can cure you of it. And it is a curable disease. Um, so 
the idea here is if you just get everybody tested, you're going to find everybody that has it. And then you can also prevent new infections by curing the hepatitis C in the community so there's nobody else left to get it from. Exactly. Like the herd immunity that people hear about with COVID. So we have no vaccine for hepatitis C, but we have a cure for it since you said around uh, 2013. So chronic infection hep B is maybe 5 to 10 percent. But here it's a higher number, 55 to 85, would you say? Correct. It's a much higher number. And I usually tell patients 80 percent or four out of five people who get infected with hepatitis C will get chronic hepatitis C. Um, you know, for the few lucky patients that get acute hepatitis C and clear it, those patients don't have immunity, so they could get it again if the risk factors continue mm. that put them at risk of it. Um, but the majority of patients who um, do get infected with this get chronic hepatitis C. And you know, over 15 to 30 years of time, it is a slow disease, uh, you could develop cirrhosis, liver cancer, or liver failure. Um, so it is mm-hmm. a good idea to find out about it as soon as possible so you can get it cured and not worry about it. So the new recommendation to get tested over age 18 at least once, well, be, be good to yourself. You know if you fall into the risk categories of using IV drugs or cocaine and your continued risk is there, get tested again because so often we miss people with early hep C and it's so fixable. And if it's diagnosed late, as you say, we run into cirrhosis and liver failure, cancer, all these horrible preventable things. Um, John, you used to talk about uh, deciding the medication plan based on different strains of uh, hepatitis C. That's not as important now, is it? It, That's correct. It's not as important as it used to be. Uh, There are different kinds of hepatitis C. We call them genotypes. Um, It's another name for a strain. There's at least six or seven different types of hepatitis C. And in the old days, we used to have to tailor the treatment to the genotype because some medications worked for some genotypes and some didn't work for other genotypes. These days, we have several options now that are we call pan-genotypic, meaning they work against all the kinds of hepatitis C. And so for most patients, it's less important now. Um, We still check it because we're curious and we want to make sure we're getting a good result. Um, But in many parts of the world, they're no longer checking genotypes and just treating the virus and getting rid of it with these new regimens that treat all the kinds of hepatitis C. With a broad brush, yeah. And the good thing is most most patients have insurance that covers the treatment, but if you don't have the right insurance, Dr. Fankel, he can help you get coverage. That's so important for people to hear because, John, you've treated over 2,000 patients. Oh, my gosh, you're going to save the planet. Um, And the beautiful thing is you told me that over 95% of patients who are treated get cured with the first round of treatment within, what, 8 to 12 weeks? It's incredible. That's right. That's right. I mean, these are really great regimens. So for most patients that walk in the door, 95% of these patients will get cured with the first thing that we throw at them. Um, These treatments are all oral. They're one to three pills a day most of the time, and it could be as short as eight weeks or 12 weeks for most patients. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's really uncommon to not get cured by that treatment as long as you take it every day. The other good news about it is really safe. Um, Most patients tolerate treatment really well. There are very few side effects. Maybe one out of five people will have a minor side effect like a headache, some fatigue, trouble sleeping, um, or a little nausea. But the vast majority of patients do great, have no side effects, and don't miss work as a result of the treatment. 
Good. And like hepatitis B, we know there's a chance that it could linger. So surveillance, see your doctor every six months. And you follow people in the office. I know sometimes the blood test can be falsely reassuring. It can be negative when you're pretty sure they have hep C. So you have other simple tests in the office. You can scan the person's liver with a little microphone and look for scar tissue. Do patients need a liver biopsy? Usually not. I haven't done a liver biopsy for hepatitis C in probably seven years now since we have some new really simple tests that we can do in the office. Yeah. So Um, listeners, no excuses. Come and get tested. You don't have to be fearful of a a liver biopsy. Also, you test patients for co-infections like hepatitis A, hepatitis B. And if they're uh, they don't have it, and you get their vaccinate, vaccinations for Hep A and Hep B, and you also stress getting vaccines for pneumonia and the flu. And we just want to end with, for hepatitis A, B, or C, your liver is already under assault from this virus. Avoid alcohol, keep a healthy weight, and check with your doctor or nurse before taking anything over the counter. Or somebody says, oh, take these herbs or supplements. They could hurt your liver even more. Tell us about that, John, in our final 30 seconds. That's true. Not only could they hurt your liver in some cases, but some supplements like milk thistle or St. John's wort may actually make the hepatitis C treatment less effective. So it's really important to tell us what you're taking if we're going to treat you for this. Mm -hmm. And especially uh, over-the-counter acid-lowering drugs like whatever, and I don't want to name any, but anything that you take for indigestion, really check with your doctor first. John, you are just a walking encyclopedia about hepatitis, and this is so helpful. Let's take a little break, and we'll come back for the last segment. Thanks, John. Thank you. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And welcome back to our final segment with Dr. John Fankel, director of the Hepatitis C Center at Jefferson, as well as the associate medical director of the Liver Transplant Program. John, thank you once again. Sure. So liver transplant is a very effective treatment for patients who have liver failure or liver cancer. Uh, We've been doing liver transplants at Jefferson since 1984, and we have um, about 75 to 85 patients a year that undergo a liver transplant. Most liver transplants are from deceased donors, um, but we can also do live donor transplants as well. Uh, Hepatitis C and liver cancer from hepatitis B or hepatitis C have traditionally been the the most common causes for somebody to need a transplant. Uh, These days we're seeing more patients with fatty liver cirrhosis. We call that non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH. Um, that's mm-hmm. now becoming a, a leading cause of transplant, but it, you know, hopefully it's something that you won't need to worry about if you get your vaccines for hepatitis B, uh, wash your hands really well, get vaccinated for hepatitis A, and um, get screened for hepatitis C and cured. Um, so if you can follow some of those things we've talked about in the previous segments, you can really take care of yourself. Um, alcohol, also you mentioned avoiding alcohol is really important, taking care of your liver uh, any regular alcohol use can cause liver disease, especially if you have other underlying liver diseases like fatty liver or viral hepatitis. Uh, so take care of yourself, take care of your liver, and hopefully you won't need to have a transplant. But if you do, mm-hmm. uh, doctors like me are here to help you. and um, It's a very effective therapy for patients who need it. And something like a liver transplant uh 
is organized by a whole team of people working together, um, kidney specialists, liver specialists, surgeons, and you want to go to a, a comprehensive program center like a Jefferson that really thinks of uh, things that other people don't remember or include in the program. So, John, if our listeners wanted to visit websites and read more about hepatitis A, B, or C, where would they go? So great resources, the cdc.gov website. Uh, they have really good information pages for all the viral hepatitis, viral hepatitis A, B, and C. Uh, you could also go to hepb.org, as you mentioned. Uh, our, our Jefferson website has also great information about hepatitis, liver disease, and liver transplant. Um, and, you know, happy to uh, talk to your own doctor to help link you to somebody who's also familiar with liver disease if you need help. John, again, thank you for bringing all this valuable information to our listeners. We have websites. And if to hear Dr. Fenkel again, visit this podcast on our website, yourradiodoctor.com. John, keep up the great work. We really appreciate your help and all the great work you do in Philadelphia. And uh, I'm going to brag a little bit for John. He's one of the most careful, devoted doctors that I know. And he is nationally recognized for his work. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for calling attention to hepatitis at this important time. Now, you're real champions. And now for your real champion. This segment is called The Old Man and the Sea. Every year, our family tradition includes time at the shore, and it's not officially summer until your feet enter the water. One day in June, the sun began to set. I noticed an elderly man sitting on a beach chair, enjoying the gentle ocean breeze. Before long, he slowly rose to his feet, then began to shuffle carefully through the sand, navigating the uneven surface on his journey to the sea, a stretch of 50 yards. As he passed, I noticed his baseball cap said, World War II veteran. I gave a little wave and said, thank you for serving. He politely declined our offer to help, and he reached the water's edge like he was visiting an old friend. I wondered what thoughts were going through his mind as he gazed at the sea. Each turn of the surf brought another wave of memories. Maybe he'd recall his many rescues as a lifeguard on Jones Beach. He never lost a swimmer, but each happy ending reinforced that life is fragile. This was also the ocean that would separate him from family during World War II when he was only 18. A champion for America, locked in arms with fellow soldiers to defend life and liberty. The next day, same time, he stopped to chat. I knew decades of experience were about to unravel. Jack Murphy, born in 1927, one of ten children, including eight boys and two girls. Five of the boys served in World War II and all came home alive. Four of the brothers became priests, a Trappist monk, a Maranol missionary, a parish priest, and Jack became a Trinitarian priest. He grew up in Freeport, Long Island. His love of the beach began as a boy. And when all the 18-year-olds went off to war, the beach patrol recruited local 17-year-olds to be lifeguards. Jack trained in the frigid ocean in early May, and his goal was to protect life, which would remain at his core. When older boys would graduate high school and return in uniform, Jack couldn't wait for his turn. Everybody in the country wanted to do everything they could to help. He wanted to fight for America, and his one brother was a paratrooper for the 82nd Airborne. He joined the Army and served in the European theater, and when the war officially ended, he spent time guarding prisoners of war from Germany. In time, he realized they were very nice guys, passionate about helping their country, just like young Americans. 
he kept in touch with some of the soldiers and went back to visit them some years later. He also made lifelong friends from the border between Austria and Yugoslavia. In fact, he raised money to bring young students to America for World Youth Day when Pope John Paul II came to Denver. He came home to study at Catholic University where he felt a great sense of simpatico. Everyone was grateful the war was over. He answered the call to become a priest and joined the Trinitarians, whose mission to serve the poor and those who suffer for their faith. In the early 60s, he felt fulfilled living among the poor, Mississippi, Cleveland, even the Bahamas. His eyes light up when he recalls joining the civil rights marches, steadfast in respecting the life of all God's children. Then came Vietnam. Of course, this member of the greatest generation re-upped with the army. But at age 40, they said he was too old for war, so he did his part stateside. Then came home and ministered for many more decades. This is a story of courage, commitment, and inspiration. Over 93 years, a man of principle. Now he's the official mayor of our beach, treasuring the beauty of each new day, greeting people who stop to chat, sharing a smile. With nearly a century of life behind him, Father Murphy finds comfort in the serenity of the sea when the water's calm, but respects the power of the surf when clouds are overhead. Struggling to meet the ocean is part of his daily mantra. He feels grateful for the gift of life, especially when he connects with the majesty in God's creation. Congratulations, Father Jack Murphy. Tune in next week to hear about the damage that excess alcohol can cause in your liver. Thank you for listening. Visit our website, yourradiodoctor.com, to listen to any of our shows. And remember, your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.